Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Lex and his wife of 60 years live a peaceful life in the unassuming eastern suburbs of Melbourne. He worked for most of his life as a teacher and vice principal, and in retirement, his home is full of kids and grandkids and photos and mementos and just all the stuff of a great life. Before he was a teacher, Lex served in the Australian Army in World War II and he was captured by the Japanese during the fall of Singapore in 1942. He spent the next three years in the Changi POW camp and at various points along the line of the Burma Railway. We captured on the 13th of Feb, Singapore fell on the 15th and then we all marched out to, to Changi. We walked it, we pushed... Beds carried the sick and mm. one thing or another. Bedlam it was in Singapore anyway. Mm. We started eating rice, weevilly old rice. and We ended up getting this, the rice that was swept off the floor, you know what I mean? And from, the, mm, from the Japanese yeah, yeah. food. Mm. But how long before you realised that they weren't going to treat you the way Australians would treat POWs? Oh, pretty well instantaneously, yeah. The, at that particular time, the Japanese were going round and uh, beheading the Chinese and heads on poles and also the streets in Singapore, you see. Wow. The Chinese suffered very badly too and so on. Mm. Mm. Now we see ISIS on the news doing mm. similar things. Mm. You've already right. seen that. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing yeah, new under the yeah. sun, is there? Mm. So there were so many men there that I felt sorry for the Japanese. Well, how are they going to feed us all, you know what I mean? That was that was a problem. So uh, they had to get they got rice from all over the place and wherever they could. And some of it was good and some bad. We ate certain weeds. We uh, found we could cook up and make a, a juice out of it, you know, for medicinal purposes and so on. So um, the Japs then decided that well, we're too many there. We'll take some away on working parties to work for them. So um, I went away in F Force. Uh, in March or April 1943. Oh, their spiel was, we'd take you to a land of milk and honey up there in uh, further north. We'll bring you up there. Yes, bring the sick with you. Yes, bring pianos, bring music, bring anything you like. Plenty of everything up there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right? We found we got into cattle trucks and went up a five-day journey up there to, to... by Bampong in Thailand, and um, 30 or 40 to a truck, and no, couldn't even lie down, and food twice a day only, you know, and uh, still trucks were that hot, boiling hot, and so on. Anyway, fella died in, in our thing, we couldn't get rid, he was in there for 24 hours, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, um, that, we knew then that we were in trouble, so we went up, got up to Bampong, and um, from there we had to walk um, up to our work, to our workplace, and that was 200 miles away. 
So we had to walk that far at night in the monsoonal rain and so on. And uh, some soldier's shirt to get food, you know what I mean, to yeah. the ties. Um, they'd get bananas or and, and hard-boiled duck eggs, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. sort of thing. And that was, I was glad to get, to get food anyway. Mm-hmm. So they, like, they sacrificed a shirt or whatever it may be. And, um, uh, and by the time we finished that walk, uh, the boots were no good. They'd been saturated and you know, mould and all that sort of thing um, causes a downfall of leather. Yeah. One thing like that. So, um, and lack of boots can kill a bloke, right? Can, so how, what was starting to happen to men in this situation with no boots, no food, monsoon, walking? Well, and you had, we had to sleep during the daytime and then march at night. Sleep during the heat of the day, you know, which we couldn't do. Yeah. Uh, lack of water. I can remember myself being. I had renal colic on the way up there, and um, I was really quite quite crook at that time then. And I can remember being delaying. I wasn't able to help too much with the carrying of patients. I was dragging around to the end of the line, sort of thing. There's a chap guard with me at the back. He had a rifle, and um, as we went along. Uh, I was trying to kid to him that you know I didn't want to be left there because the Thai bandits would knock you off and kill you and so on mm-hmm. if if you left the line you know for what though what's the point for the little you had or what you know just in case you had something so anyway I can remember distinctly the the, the old Jap there uh, I was carrying the, a lantern thing and he was had the rifle so anyway he heard the tiger in the jungle heard a the tigers were roaring, you know, wow. in the night time. And he gave me his rifle and he took me, took my lantern. Oh. So, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. yeah. He's more scared of the tiger yeah, than of right. you yes. and a rifle. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he gave me the rifle <laughs> and he took the lantern. Yeah. And by jeans, we tried to keep up with the others more, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Weary Dunlop's crowd were at that particular time. They were there before us. And... Um, they they were out working or sleeping at the night when we were going through or something, and um, uh, we had the there was no food. They didn't allow any food for us or anything because they didn't have much to give away. Yeah. Anyway. So um, we went through the camp. I can remember that, and uh, uh, the um, about halfway, th- about two thirds of the way up to our where we was going to work, we stopped and. Um, Men came back from a working party on that particular day from the camp. I said to Dr. Roy Mills was with me, and um, uh, the only doctor we had there was for our men, Australian men. And um, I said, I don't like the look of that. Most of these passing net of a rice school, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'd read in the book that I'd picked up a little magazine thing. I somehow I don't know why it was called The Scourge of the East, and it was about cholera. And I read read up about it. I didn't know, know knew before about it. before any of this. Yeah, yeah. This happened. Wow. And, uh, and I said to him, "I think it's cholera." Oh, Mucky nearly died, you know. Mm. So anyway, investigated. Sure enough, this fellow had cholera. So he asked me, "Would I look after him?" I said, "Yeah, I'll look after him." I had no medical experience at all. I, I said, uh, "Yes, I." So a little hut right in a mite in the corner of camp, way up there, uh, and I. We took him up to there, and he went from about 14 stone, I suppose, down to about seven in the space of overnight. He died within 12 hours of cholera. Fluid was flowing from his mouth and bowels and everywhere, you know, losing fluid everywhere. So um, he passed away, and then I was, because I'd been with him, I was isolated. And next thing was, there were more with cholera. So I had to. I was then looking after the cholera people. You know what I mean? Wherever we went, and um, I didn't know much. And then Doctor Mills told me exactly what to do. He explained and once told me what to do with a scalpel to uh, here's me cutting arteries there and putting saline injections in from bamboo uh, cannula. It was a bamboo thing. Yeah. No needle. But, but, Slip it from bamboo thing, and um, 
Uh, like homemade drips. Yeah, that's right. We, and trying to keep keep the fluid into the body, you know, for them. Yeah. And we had no. Um, it was raining all the time at night. We had sticks up and big banana leaves over the top to as it make a shelter. Mm-hmm. And um, it was tough going. How old were you, by the way, during this? How old were you then? I was twenty-one. Those that died, we had to burn. We used burn. Had to burn them, make a fire, and burn the bodies. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese group that came with the opposite was Roy Mills, the doctor. They could only come with about fifty yards from the camp from where I was, anyway. And you'd yell out who died during the night and what you know, that sort of thing and how things were going, you know, let them know what was going on. One of the Jap said to me once word came round that he wanted me to look out there's a Jap in a, in a hut further over there and he's sick, you know? And they were worried about that. So I had to go over there and have a look at him to see I thought he had cholera too, so um I um so I just set fire to the hut. Burnt, you know, burnt the whole With thing. With him in it? Oh, yeah. Mm. Did you? Yep. Mm. Was he alive? We, I think he was dead. Okay. I think he was. Mm. Okay. Mm. And it hasn't worried me since. They told the Japanese fella, they were relieved. They don't, they did, they don't like sick men at all, you know. Mm. They were just glad that he was off their hands. So, so, he was burnt. I would have had to burn him anyway. Mm. I just set fire to the hut. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that we moved on to, to further on to where we were working, we made another cholera camp. I had, was still in the cholera camp, and the, I was there till um, till the row was finished in October '43, and um, and I didn't get cholera. That's amazing. Yeah. That's why when this uh, what do you call it, a pol- uh, Ebola? Yes, all the fuss about that, and the. And the, and the Prime Minister you know, saying, um, oh, we don't want to send people over there because we won't be able to get them out and all the rest of it. I thought I was saying, look, I'm 90-odd. If, if I was a bit younger, I'd go across there and uh, volunteer and help them. You mm. must feel well, superhuman in some no, ways. If I didn't get cholera, most likely I mightn't get that either. A lot came home by hospital ship mm-hmm. from Singapore to Melbourne. I've, I had a, I got a plane load of... People, I'd take them to the lab one, you know, and there they were stayed were there for two weeks or more, and you were, they were fattening us up there, yeah. the Yanks and one thing were there too, and um, had to drink two bottles of beer a day. Had to, had to drink it, yeah. whether you liked it or loved it, you know. They're trying to stick it, you up stick it you very quickly, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wanted to, mm. But you still had your tropical ulcers to deal with, and I guess, yeah. yes, and uh, yes, and. Um, I, I um, they didn't treat me for hookworm, which they should have done. And so, when I went back to teaching, and I was doing country teaching, and uh, I was cutting wood and blacking out, sort of thing, and so on. And I think they originally thought it was something wrong with my equilibrium or head or something, and they sent me to uh, education. They sent me to a psychiatrist. But anyway, when we guys came home, this is what got me. Uh, I had um, brothers and sisters, of course, too, and uh, they had a notice of welcome home and a banner, little banner, and you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, after a fifth week or two, I thought, geez, it's a bit different from what I thought it was going to be, you know, a bit of reserve there, you know, and uh, now I found out later that. When we, we, when the army found out we were coming home, they got our parents to go out to the uh, race course or one of those places out there, or the showgrounds, I think, or somewhere, and they had a big meeting there. And they were told, be careful of them, treat them carefully. They might be something wrong with their heads. They might be, you know, treat them gently, you know, beware, see? And so that was, a, that was the attitude when we got home. When I got, we, our fellas got home, that uh, it's just sort of... They didn't know how to take you, you know what I mean? They were wary of you. As in you might be dangerous to them? Mentally, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like that. Mm. Some of our fellas were mentally deranged when they came back and they were unwell. Some of them attacked the bottle too much, you know what I mean, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, one fella died in, um, in um, 
in the, the gutter there in the, in the city. Yeah, another fellow uh, was got a job on a farm in Gippsland, and he put an axe for the head of both the husband and wife that is working there. Mm. He was mentally deranged, you see. Mm-hmm. They should have checked those things. They didn't. Mm. Yeah, because now we, now I assume you would come home from experience like that mm. with some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder, and but they didn't. They didn't even that. didn't term it that way at all. Yeah. No, I think they marked all of it with some anxiety neurosis or something they called it. Whatever they be, you know. Yeah. That was a general term and. But shell shock was a big deal after World War One. It was. So you yes. would think that after World War Two they'd be more attuned yes. to yes. the things that can happen to a man. Yes, true, Michelle. Mm. Mm. Did you ever suffer psychologically? Nightmares or uh, anything like that? Flashbacks? Oh, it worried me quite a bit at times. But um, I, um, I was philosophical about the whole thing, I reckon. Uh, you know, to think, well, we're home. Thank you, thank you, lucky stars, and count your blessings, you know? Yeah. Mm. Mm. I'm Michelle Laurie, and you are right in the middle of the Nitty Gritty Committee. Thank you for downloading. From Burma in the 1940s, we travel all the way forward to Afghanistan in 2010 and 2012. That's when our next guest was deployed there. His name's Tyson Murray. Tyson is now a volunteer for Mates for Mates. That's Mates number four, Mates. I'll just read you from their website. This is what they say about what they do. We provide physical and psychological rehabilitation for current and ex-serving Australian Defence Force members who are wounded, injured or ill. We also support the families of these brave mates. Coming into Kandahar is like... uh, It's like you fly over it and this is uh it's like a city like it's actually looks like a city it's it's the busiest airport in the world and uh because it's funded by the americans you go into this place and they have fast food restaurants they have everything you can imagine their shopping centers it's just so uh amazing to see it's hectic and then you uh the australians obviously don't have that sort of uh capability we only had a, a thousand people in Afghanistan at a time and probably half of those were out at the patrol bases where we didn't have like shower or toilet facilities we were sleeping in a hole in the ground it was uh yeah it's pretty impressive to see and it, it makes me laugh because when you uh when the comedians and, and when the the uh performers or the actors come to Afghanistan they do their shows at the big main bases like Tarankout or Kandahar or that sort of stuff and they never get out to the war fighters who are out at the patrol bases doing it hard and actually fighting the war we're mm. like so how come all the logistics staff get get to see these mad performances and here's us digging in with our eyelids and all we've got is each other for entertainment because logistics book the gigs mate yeah that's exactly <laughs> right yeah <laughs> that's how that works out yeah and Kandahar so the Taliban um conducted a siege of Kandahar, right, in yeah. uh, for a couple of years. And then in, was it 2011, there was the big battle of Kandahar. Yeah. We are, the Australians mostly operate out of uh, Tarrant Cout, which mm-hmm. is just north of Kandahar, and a uh, hell of a lot smaller. And uh, so I, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know actually a lot about the, the stuff that went on at Kandahar. Well, tell us about Tarrant Cout. Yeah, it's uh, one of the more remote outposts of Afghanistan. The, uh, the base consists primarily of Australians, Dutch and Afghan National Army. And uh, that's, the, that's the, the big Australian base that we sort of resupply from. Off that we have half a dozen patrol bases which are literally just uh, a fort in the middle of the valley. Like it's just generally four HESCO walls and, and, and a perimeter we can defend and that's it. Mm-hmm. And we'll uh, conduct, conduct patrols uh, out of there. Very, very basic. You are uh, my uh, first three months at the patrol base. As I said, we didn't have um, shower or toilet facilities. You, if you had to pass a bowel movement, you just went in a garbage bag. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it, that would just be burnt. You are. Uh, I wore the same clothes for three months. Our, our boots would 
because you're patrolling every day, your your boots would rot off you. And so, because they're getting, you'd walk have to walk through the aqueducts, so they'd get wet, mm. and then they'd just bake in the sun during the rest of the patrol. And so, it, by the end of it, our boots were that buggered. You had to soak them in water just to get them on. You know what's amazing is I spoke to a man who was a Burma Railway veteran and he said the same thing about yeah. army boots. And I think, God, with all the technology, you'd think yeah. in the 80 years since they'd have made a better boot. You'd think so. But uh, but no. Like even still, our boots are brilliant. They're top of the range. But still, it's it's what they get put through that is just... We'll, our average patrol was sort of 10 to 12 kilometres a day. And so... When you're doing working at that sort of intensity, and especially over the terrain, like the, the desert of Afghanistan, every single rock is perfectly de- shaped and designed to roll your ankle on. Yeah. And so it's they get pushed their paces, and I can imagine it would have been the exact same at Burma. You you look at the conditions they're operating in, mm. and it's no wonder they cop a, a bit of a hiding. So when you you're living in those conditions and you you know you're filthy you can't get a shower obviously you can't change your clothes you go into the toilet in a plastic bag and burning it um is that as hideous as it seems to me or is there an element of that that's that's a bit of fun that's that's very masculine army kind of dream stuff well it certainly makes camping in australia a lot easier yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, it was uh like it's hard it's quite uh it's hard to do that, but I think that's uh, that's where a lot a lot of the the bonding and the mateship and the character building is done. Like you don't go to war to to do it easy, and and I think I'd be uh, uh, I'd be almost a little bit upset if we went to war and it was in this day and age and it was easy, and, and especially when you um, compare us to to our ancestors and, and to the veterans of previous conflicts. Like you look how hard they do it and how we've done it there's no comparison at all like mm. those those guys did it tough the benefit of of modern day warfare is if, if we get uh, injured or if if worst case somebody passes away on a patrol within 40 minutes we can have a helicopter in there and have fire support and have the the injured person out of there back in those days in world war Two, you didn't have that luxury you're only way out of the war was either getting shot or riding it out till the end and uh i think so so i um i'm very thankful we we got to experience the conditions we did it certainly built a lot of character and and uh one of the things i'm i'm uh i lost for for a little while when i went off the rails a bit but i've certainly found it again and it certainly reinforced this this, this is the time that was built is the fact that the human body is amazing and, and can achieve amazing things when when you commit to it physically and mentally it, it's un- unbelievable what you can actually get through and, and uh, it's scenarios like that and, and being in that adversity and living in those shitty conditions that you, you really learn that and you reinforce that Can we talk a bit about when you went off the rails in your words um yeah. You suffered a major breakdown and yeah. were eventually diagnosed with PTSD after you came home from your 2012 stint in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. What happened? So I, uh, in 2000, on the 7th of June 2010, I was uh, involved with an, in an IED blast that killed two of my men. And uh, I, after the incident, we, you don't have time to mourn or, or really... Um, accept what's happened. You, you're operating at an intensity and a level that's that high that uh, your emotions in, in your, your mind don't really have time to catch up with what's happened. And so whilst you're on deployment, you've still got a job to do. You're there to protect your mates and and, and the rest of the call sign. And so you're, you, whatever you're feeling, you suppress and you keep, you just fight through and work through the pain and work through the hurt. And the longer you can suppress something that needs to be released, the more destructive it becomes, or the more destructive it is when it finally comes out. And that's what was happening. So after the the strike, we just got on with the job, like any 
a good soldier war and we cracked on for the next three months and and I didn't have any issues to be honest I, everything was fantastic I was operating in an environment I was comfortable in and we were doing our job very well and it wasn't until we got home to Australia when I started to have dramas and uh, when you operate at at such a high intensity for so long that it becomes normality when you actually come back to everyday life and and uh, like normal normal it's an immense adjustment that, that takes quite a long time and, and some people have more trouble than others and and during this time I was starting to show signs of PTSD It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss and starting to struggle emotionally but uh there was already talk of another deployment on deployment on the cards mm. and so had i have come out and, and expressed to work that i was struggling struggling uh psychologically then i wasn't getting deployed again and there was and you no wanted to be oh of course mm. of course the an operational deployment for a soldier is the the pinnacle of his job it's what everyone strives for and and um it's what everyone wants to uh to achieve it's no matter how many uh simulated exercises you practice or rehearse nothing actually compares to, to the real thrill and uh, adrenaline of combat mm. and so i uh i did what was necessary to redeploy <clears throat> and just once again kept suppressing those emotions and and uh and getting on with the job and and back in Afghanistan, everything was back to normal. I was doing the job. I was uh, with my man. I was loving life because, to be honest, if my man had deployed without me, I uh, I couldn't have lived with myself. I, I would have been absolutely heartbroken. There's, the bond you make with these men is is absolutely unbreakable. And looking uh, back, do you think that? You were the only one who was suppressing feelings to make sure you were redeployed? Not at all. You think you get to a point where you're a bunch of blokes who are suppressing feelings just to be able to get back there? Oh, most certainly. Yeah. To be, In my opinion, I think if uh, the army psychologists, if we were un- honest with the army psychologists, they'd probably put us all in padded cells. Mm. And so we, uh, <laughs> we, we say what we need to say to get back overseas and get back with our men and do the job. Mm. It was on return from my second trip... That's I uh, I tried to get back into the rhythm of uh, normal life, and, and that's when I uh, started having adjustment issues. I uh, just the way it had, things had worked out, I'd returned home before the rest of my mates and before the rest of my team, and and uh, the fact that they were still deployed without me, and and I was back here in the comfort of my own home, constantly ate away at me. So what was your behaviour like? How was how were how were these adjustment issues manifesting in the world? It uh it starts subtly and grows and grows until it's a uh it occupies every aspect of your life. It uh it started out with as uh irritability. Mm. I just get very irritated very e- easily that uh, I couldn't handle traffic or crowds or large groups of people. Whenever my why was I, that? I mean, was was there a fear factor in that, or did we just give you the shits? Uh, <laughs> I, I would say potentially a bit of the both, but I think a lot of it's got to do with being uh, in control as well. Mm. When you're in Afghanistan, you're situationally aware, and you know you're in a position where a lot of the time you know what's going on 
all around you, like right around you. Know it, you know exactly what's happening. Yeah. And if you don't, you know the bloke next to you is covering your arc, and you know he's got your back. And so you have a very, very good understanding in, of your environment. When you come back to a shopping center or a car park or, or a public place, you lose that control, and you lose that. You can't be aware of everything that's happening, and uh, it's almost like in your head you're wondering where the next threat's going to come from. Mm. And so that ir- irritability turns into frustration and the frustration and the irritability grow together and, and that compounds eventually and becomes anger and and, and the anger um, compounded with the other emotions on top of this you're, you're starting to feel depressed because you for for whatever reason either you, you're not with your mates or you're you're no longer doing the job you love or or sometimes you're depressed because you you're having these feelings and these emotions and uh you begin to self-medicate and uh that's that's never a good good option for anyone but that's generally being soldiers our first point of call is generally generally alcohol but we just never know when we're doing it do we i mean i've most people have at some point in their lives self-medicated but we just we just don't realise that's what we're doing. We feel like, no, I just want to drink today and tomorrow no, and the next day. Exactly. And, and the, the fact that there's such a stigma attached with mm. mental health and PTSD and uh, soldiers, including myself, are scared to come out and say they're, they're struggling emotionally. A, because as soon as you come out with and say, I've got PTSD, there's a black mark on your career. And Career's over. So pro- career progression's over. Yep. And the fact that our entire careers or our entire lives we've been so i'll say careers we've we've been that role model we've been the hero we've been the soldier the leader the man the big the tough guy that goes to war and defends the nation and then when you come home from that and you're no longer that in your eyes you're no longer that role model you're no longer that um, the man of the house and that that idol to your family you're a psychological mess and you don't want the rest of society to see that and so once again, as I said, you compound all these feelings and all emotions and, and just keep that inside until the point where where you're physically, emotionally exhausted and at your wit's end and you just break. It all, it all comes out in one hit. And by, that, by the time you have your breakdown, generally, in my opinion, you're too... You, you're past the point of just hitting this on the head quickly. Like this is, yeah. by the time you have your breakdown, this is when you need uh, psychological interference or you need uh, uh, you need to be heavily medicated or, or one of those things. So what, what did you, where did you end up? Well, I, uh, I, uh, well, my, I was in a pretty bad way. My, uh, I was self-medicating with, with alcohol and, and party drugs and, and unnecessary risk taking I was I was seeking out adrenaline just to feel something and and taking party drugs I was taking coke and ecstasy just to just because for a fleeting moment I felt that rush and that that had that that adrenaline and or I'd go uh I'd go and do adventure type activities like rock climbing and and scuba diving and really push the limits to the point it's dangerous just because you get that little rush and uh I uh, I had two relationships fall apart, and it got to the point where I was just exhausted and I couldn't do it anymore. And I uh, and I had a, a, a sort of mental breakdown just about, and and I ended up uh, <coughs> getting uh, put in hospital and, and on medication, and and that was the the lowest point for me because by this stage I'd still kept all of this from from work. I hadn't told mm. Mother Army what was going on. And then when this happened, I had to come out and, and say, "Look, I, I'm a, I'm a broken man. This is what's been going on." And and that's when Army come out and said, "Well, the, the doctors are pretty confident you're not going to recover to a to a deployable state again. So oh. you'll be medically downgraded and discharged from the army." And God, uh, how was that day? Heartbreaking. I mean, you're, yeah, you're already absolutely heartbreaking. You're uh, low. That's my. I was living my dream. I was doing everything I'd ever aspired to be, and then you're told that dream has to end and so it was that just compounded things and uh for a uh for quite a while there i was in a very very bad way 
the Afghanistan suicide rate is now, th at last account, is three times that of our combat casualties. So we've had 41 blokes in killed in combat in Afghanistan, mm. and we've had over 100, well over 120 Afghan veterans kill themselves. And so there's obviously an issue here that needs to be identified, and, and I'm very thankful that that I, I didn't take that path because it's absolutely heartbreaking. But I, uh, yeah, I think. Uh, what what can the army do, and what what aren't they doing? And and I mean, again, when when I spoke to Lex, he talked about um, in in the time that he was journeying back to Australia from Asia <clears throat> after World War Two, he didn't know this, but. The families, all the families of the Melbourne diggers, returning diggers, were had to go to a meeting at the showgrounds. And at the meeting, they were told lots of things, including they were told to be very wary of the men coming home. They were told... Yeah, that, that still happens. Like, they still... Yeah. Families get told that they need to be... Just be prepared that there's going to be quite a few adjustment issues. And uh, that for the, a little while... The, we might not be the exact same person as we were when we left and we might uh, just need a little bit of time to find our feet. Lex felt as though they weren't told that though. He felt as though the returning men themselves didn't get much of that sort of um, care. Yeah, well, the army is the army's not perfect but it's certainly trying okay. to, to, uh, to make things, things better and I don't think anything's ever going to per be perfect, but the army uh, does make an effort to make the transition as easy as possible. Mm. And I think... Um, I don't know what you could ever do to make yeah, that transition exactly. easy. I, I, decompression's a huge thing. Mm. But you've, like, coming from combat to uh, back to normal life, but mm. it's very, very difficult, difficult to do. So you see, the, uh, the Great War veterans had five weeks on a ship with each other That's right. to sort of decompress a lot, whereas generally us Australians have 10 days. That being said, the army makes us do 10 days. When we've come back from nine months in Afghanistan, mm. the very last thing we want to be doing is sitting on base for 10 days, mm. talking about all that sort of stuff, like adjusting to society and all that sort of rubbish. We want to get out of there and be with our families. And so it's... It's, I don't know how they're going to fix it, to be honest. And, and I think um, one of the keys or the... Uh, the uh, I think the best thing they can do in, in regards to, to mental health is education and let the soldiers know that uh, just because, uh, well, A, everyone is going to have some sort of adjustment issues, whether it be... be uh, short-term or long-term, mm -hmm. you, you're going to struggle after coming from that sort of combat environment back to normality. Mm. And that's all right. Like, it's not a bad thing. All and then right. do you reckon if that was said, um, is there a way that that you could have had some kind of assistance that could have enabled you to cope with the issue at the time and then be redeployed? Do you, do you well, wonder if... If you'd nipped it in the bud earlier, you might have been able to continue with your career. Most certainly, I, like hindsight's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Like we can say these things now. But also, the culture sort of inhibited that. So if the culture were different, and you yeah. could have spoken up, exactly. I think uh, I, I strongly believe that the key to uh, to uh, managing or overcoming PTSD is early identification. And if we can get fellows to put their hands up as soon as they're having trouble and say alright I'm having adjustment issues let's hit it on the head now before it develops into something that's that's uh, long term I, I, I'm more than confident if we could do that and make soldiers aware that just because they're, they're having a, uh, a few adjustment issues that it's not going to be the end of their career they just need to take some take some time find their feet and and sort themselves out yeah like it's uh this is blokes with PTSD aren't uh, aren't broken. They just need time to to find their feet and 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 readjust. And that's all it is. It's just an adjustment. God, what do you think about people like me who think you you shouldn't have to go to war? I don't want, I don't want you to go to war. I don't want you to ever go to war. I certainly don't want you to go back to war. I think war's stupid. 
I'm uh, like I'm old school. I think it's very honourable that men put their hands up to willingly go and defend the Commonwealth and go and defend their nation. And once again, it's it, it comes down to um, education. And and to be honest, a, a soldier isn't always going to agree with the cause. Mm. Uh, and a but can you go anyway? Can you go if you don't agree with why you're going? You, well, you you generally have have an option okay. to to deploy. And if you don't think you're going, if you think you're going to struggle on the deployment, then you generally won't deploy. But the, you don't, in my opinion, the soldier doesn't deploy for the cause. The soldier deploys for his mates. Yeah, you go okay. over there and you do your job. You you have to have some belief in the cause. Well, I I think you have to have some belief in the cause. But your reason you deploy, and you go and put yourself through this stuff and you go and push yourself physically and mentally to the absolute limit is to is for the man beside you the you know that uh the greatest bonds are formed in adversity and when you're laying on your guts in the dirt with dust fairies shooting up around your feet and you're in a position where you don't know if you're going to get out of it and the only comfort you have is there's a bloke laying next to you in the exact same position and if you're going to go, you're going to go together. That's you can't get a feeling like that. You can't. Uh, there's nothing in civilian society that can build that type of bond. And so when you get through that, and you now have this deep, intense brotherhood that compares to nothing else. I uh, I think that that brotherhood is and that mateship is the reason men deploy and. Uh, that's the reason men will continue to to deploy, and I think it's uh, it's clear in the the uh, it was obvious in the Great Wars, and I, I think don't think that's changed over the last hundred years. You uh, you fight for the man beside you, and and of course to keep to keep the lifestyle that we we know and love, and and to keep try and make the world a little bit of, of a better place. It's interesting. I suppose that is the fundamental <laughs> difference in you and I and I wonder if it's a male female thing predominantly too I know there are women who serve and I know there are women who uh, there are men who are pacifists but I wonder because listening to you I I realize oh that's why there's war because there will always be men politicians who want to sort out a disagreement that way and there will always be young men who are prepared to go and be involved in it like you know what I mean if if there weren't men like you who could find a philosophical reason to do it? It's sad to say that there is, there is evil people in the world, and there's always going to be dictators and evil people in the world. And and you look at uh, I'll, I'll use ISIS as a prime example. Yeah. There, ISIS may not uh, affect Australia directly at this point in time, but after seeing the atrocities they commit. We as society cannot just stand back and let them get away with this. I know, but people and say that the reason we went to Iraq was to depose a dictator who was committing atrocities, and yet he has been replaced by a far more hideous force. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Did well, we create them? Well, I don't, I don't. I don't know either. Mate. To be honest, I I, you you take the you take out one, the next one's next one is always going to stand up and and take his place like this that's going going to happen throughout yeah. time it, it, there's always going to be that that uh there's never going to be an answer when we don't have uh no conflict and, and no bad guys trying to take over there's too much greed and corruption in the yes. world but i i think the best we can do is unite as a free world and do our best to to minimalize the impact these people are having on, on the world and and when you look at you've got this this uh, these Islamic extremists that are taking out hundreds of thousands of people for an ideology they have, mm-hmm. and the, the atrocities they're committing are just medieval. And to to be honest, if I if I was in a position where I could go and defend uh, defend the, these the victims over there, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Because although once, as I said, it's not die. die affecting us directly it's yeah. something that it can't go on like people the world isn't perfect there's always going to be be problems with the world but you can't let atrocities like this go on it's just it's heartbreaking to see so when people say things like bugger them we should blow them all up let them fight yeah. it out let them fight themselves to the death you can't philosophically understand that <clears throat> it's uh 
it's the it's so so complicated yeah and a lot of these comments come from people that that aren't educated or or the very I won't say uneducated they're they're uneducated in the topic and they're or they have very very biased tunnel vision opinions and so I I think uh I think we always uh whilst ever there's people in the world that that are going to stand up and and try and put a stop to this evil I think we're going to be all right but when the evil becomes a uh, a majority and the good people become a minority, then, then we're probably in a pretty bad way. Well, you know what they say, and all we need for evil to prosper is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Exactly. Like, mm. the world is never going, going to be perfect. I think we can just... It's, it's so complicated now. I, I think we can just do the best we can and try and make these... Ex- extremist organisations have have as small an impact as possible. It's so interesting to talk to you about. It's a really, um, like you've you've made me think of it very, very differently. I suppose the Anzac narrative has been so much about, it was more of a confusing time for them. It seems to me that they weren't as as aware as you are of the global significance of, you know, it felt, it feels like maybe that's a communication issue that you were in Africa or you were in Burma and just getting information about what what was going on elsewhere and where you actually stood was really difficult for them. It was confusing, whereas you seem to have a very clear concept of your place in the greater global context, you know? I don't think they... Uh, you're right. I don't think they fully under, understood what they were getting into. They, no. they, maybe that sense of pride uh, was the driving force behind going and defending the nation, whereas... In this day and age, <coughs> soldiers, uh, all you've got to do is read the newspaper and you know what's going on in the world and we ha- have a very, very um, thorough understanding of the combat zone we're going into and and we have, uh, we know what we're getting into. We uh, we have an understanding of the culture and we have an understanding of the people and we have a very good understanding of the enemy and, and terrain and all sorts of stuff. So it's not, although we are, you can't you can't make me feel like Afghanistan while I'm here in Australia I've got a good understanding of what I'm going to get exposure to while I'm there mm. and yet when you get there it must still be mind yeah, blowing it is mind blowing it's absolutely mind blowing and one of the greatest lessons I, uh, I've got from my service and, and from my time is being in the desert is the, the ability to appreciate things mm. you are uh, like the simplest things, having um, a shower every day, yeah. having changed clothes, having a change of clothes, being able to put on clean socks—you really, really do appreciate things. Just having the ability ability to hold someone you love, like mm. that's such a great comfort. And not have people should... actively trying to kill you, mate. Yeah, exactly. Every second of every minute of every day. Exactly. Like that's, that's such unbelievable. The the thing that really frustrates me with with Australian society and is they a lot of people and this isn't the whole society but there's a lot of people that don't actually realize how lucky they are mm. I love Australia it's and Australia is far from perfect in a lot of regards but we do a pretty good job mm. we're such a young nation we're, we're so efficient and we're so everything we've got uh Sorted. I, well, I like to say our shit squared away. <laughs> yep. Like it's an army term, and, and it's truth. We've got it. We've got our shit sorted. You, whereas you get exposure to the rest of the world, you get exposure to to these third world countries and uh, exposure to people where uh, where mentally they're years behind us. You, we go to yep. countries where people are still live, living in mud huts, mm. where they still sleep with animals in their living room where and they're still subject to crazy social swings to to changing governments and changing regimes and and wars with outsiders and insiders and you know and we we are so lucky it's it's utter madness Mm. and and it really frustrates me where um when you see people in australia that that just take our lifestyle for granted and that's exactly what it is And, and i've had the the benefit of seeing a lawless nation I've seen a society without police I've seen a society without the army and that's why I have the utmost respect 
for the police and for the emergency services because I've, I know what it's like without them. Mm. And it really frustrates me when you see these people who carry on like pork chops when the police pull them up for being a dickhead. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you should see the place if we didn't have them. Yeah. And, and I think if you want to be a dickhead, then you deserve a slap on the wrist or you deserve a boot up the ass. Like, that sounds like as good a place as any to rap. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk to you all day, Tyson. You are great. Thank you so much. I hope you uh, got something from it. Oh, uh... yeah. No, you were brilliant. And I'm going to get put that up tomorrow, so I'll make sure. You'll find more info about all of our guests at michellelaurie.com, as well as a place to leave questions and feedback. There's also a link there to the website of Tenzin Choyil. He is the man behind the beautiful Tibetan music you've heard throughout the podcast. Thank you to Tim Mountford and Peter Laurie for editing help, but please know that the clunkiest edits are all mine. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee, conversations about the guts and the glory of life. Please subscribe to get them all on iTunes and go ahead and leave us a nice review if you feel so inclined. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.